This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by Revitalist, yet another company that I've pursued to bring on the show as a sponsor because I know they truly have solutions to many of the problems that we face. Currently, there is a global pain and mental health pandemic that we are suffering through. For some people, traditional therapies are working, whether it's psychotherapy, whether it's even prescribed medication, but for many, many people, they are what's known as treatment resistant. The traditional roads are just not working for them, leaving them even more frustrated. You may have heard multiple times on this show, the Navy SEAL community, for example, having incredible success with Ibogaine and psilocybin, and in the UK, MDMA-led therapy. The problem is none of those are legal at the moment. The good news is the anesthesiology world discovered that ketamine, a drug that they use legally every day during surgeries, actually has incredible mental health and chronic pain applications as well. Now, on episode 559, I had Catherine Walker, a certified nurse anesthetist, who decided to start Revitalist after seeing the incredible results on chronic pain and mental health challenges. This rapidly expanding company is currently in nine locations spanning Knoxville, Tennessee, Detroit, Houston, Jacksonville, Florida, and beyond. And each facility offers low-dose ketamine therapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, TMS, vitamin infusions, and so much more. Now, to truly hear the full story behind this, go to episode 559 and listen to Catherine Walker's episode or go to revitalistclinic.com to learn more about the therapies they offer, their locations, and to reach out to them yourself. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. 
Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 587 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Susan Lopez, aka Tactical Dietitian. Now, Susan is an Army veteran. She is also an Army spouse, but she spent a majority of her career working in the nutritional space, initially within the military and now branching out on her own, working with elite military and first responder personnel. So we discuss a host of topics from nutrition in schools and hospitals all the way through to fueling the tactical athlete and everything in between. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Susan Lopez. Enjoy. Well, Susan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've listened to a few episodes, so this is really exciting for me. Yeah, I think it was uh, Jeff Nichols that turned me on to you because I noticed that that he talked about you. um, And for me, if Jeff Nichols talks about anyone, then that's usually for a very good reason. So let's start with that little segue. How did you meet Jeff? 
So Jeff was actually my husband's strength and conditioning coach during his journey to enter the special operations community. So uh, I'm a military veteran. I was in the army for seven years. My husband is currently serving with 275 Ranger Regiment and My husband joined later in life. So he actually went through ranger assessment selection at the age of 33, um, which by that time, by military standards, you are definitely the old guy. Um, Part of that journey was working with Jeff to get my husband ready. So we worked with Jeff for about three years as clients, uh, just trying to get my husband prepared to go through that selection process. And we've maintained a relationship with Jeff over the last several years, uh, just as coach, friend, uh, mentor. And a couple of years ago, Jeff had approached me uh, as I was starting Tactical Dietitian and wanted to do some work together in the nutrition realm and asked me to create some nutrition material for some of his programming. And we've been working together ever since. And, And that's really it. Brilliant. Well, that's amazing to hear, especially being 33 and having the diligence and the humility to understand that it's, I mean, it's going to take preparation regardless, but as you are older, and I use er, he's not old, but um, <laughs> I think that's it. You, when we get to the drawgram, when we get to, you know, special operations selections, whatever it is, there's only two types of people, the ones that are prepared and the ones that hadn't. So what was it that made him different to have that like three year um kind of ramp up plan where a lot of people probably would have i'm assuming taken weeks if not months at most sure so special operations was something that my husband always wanted to do probably from the time he was 10 years old and he read his first book about navy seals Uh, i think that's everybody's kind of first introduction into special operations is the seals but uh he is something he always wanted to do and Life just kind of happened. Um, You know, he went to college. Um, He worked with his parents for a little bit um, in their business after college Um, and then started his career, started his own business and and life just sort of happened. And he just got to this point where he was like, this is something that I've always wanted to do. I've always felt called to do it. And I'm getting to the point where if I just don't pull the trigger on it, it's not going to happen. Right. And nobody wants to live with regret for the rest of their life. So at this point, uh, we were together, uh, we were dating, um, you know, getting ready to start a family and whatnot. Um, And he asked me and I was out of the service by this time. And he asked me, he's like, hey, I really want to do this and I need you to be on board with this. And I was like, 100 percent, let's do it. I'm all about it. Uh, I'll follow you wherever you go. Um, So we knew (laughs) that he needed training. Even though my husband was in great shape, my husband actually came from the bodybuilding world and was actually an active competitor at a super heavyweight class. So my husband is a large individual. Um, Currently, um, he's still sitting around 265, but when he was bodybuilding, his top off-season weight was 300 pounds. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, So transitioning from a sport like bodybuilding to now trying to get into special operations is just a completely opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of cases. So we had to take that time to actually strip him down. Um, and I was a dietitian, of course, so I was managing his nutrition the entire time. We had to strip him down. Uh, we had to completely change the type of training that he was doing. 
we had to develop energy systems. He had no aerobic energy system, right? As a bodybuilder, you're not going to do a lot of cardio. And when you're going into the military, that's all they do. So we had to really develop those energy systems, strip the mass off of his body, and then just prepare his joints, uh, prepare his tendons, his ligaments, right? Because he was older um, and make sure that he was just ready to go so that he could keep up with the young guys. And it took three years um, in order for him to be able to get there, to also decide where he wanted to go in special operations and then to secure a contract uh, through the recruiting office. So, but it's paid dividends. I mean, when you spend that much time training up, you know, now again, him being the old guy, right? He's 37 now, um, him being the old guy and still on his first contract, you know, he's outperforming some of these young guys uh, that he works alongside. So that three years was well worth the investment. And like I said, Jeff was absolutely a big piece of that. Well, I'm glad that we started immediately with this tangent. Um, when I wrote a book about a year and a half ago, and in that was one of my kind of an event I witnessed as a, a recruit. I wasn't hired by a fire department yet. I was doing a testing where you did this one test and they send all the results to all these different fire departments in, in Florida. And these two bodybuilders, bright orange gentlemen, um, were strutting around. This is not all bodybuilders. These particular two gentlemen had a, a certain ego magnitude that I've, I've never witnessed since. <laughs> but anyway, um, when it came to actually doing this test that we did, at the exact same floor, which is only three floors up, first event, you put hose on your shoulder and you start climbing, they both tapped out. And it was a real kind of wake up moment for, um, you know, realizing you have, you know, show muscle and go muscle, as they say. And of course, there are some people that aesthetically look great I and mean, look at the CrossFit Games that are in, you know, phenomenal performance as well. But there is also the bodybuilding world, like you said, where there's no cardio. It's all about mass. It's all about symmetry and chiseling, which is, you know, mm -hmm. an art in itself. It doesn't mean that it transitions into tactical space. So aside from your husband, you know, what, what have you observed about, the bodybuilding kind of movement in the tactical space, uh, maybe some of the kind of myths and, uh, you know, and also maybe some exceptions to the rule where you've seen some people that were phenomenal in that space. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're talking about the influence that the bodybuilding space has had on the tactical community, I mean, the influence is massive. Um, you know, 20 years ago, bodybuilding was kind of like an underground thing, or I would say even, you know, before 20 years ago, it was kind of an underground thing. And it's really become much more mainstream over the last couple of decades. And the influence of individuals like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jay Cutler and Ronnie Coleman and, you know, the different magazines, Muscle and Fitness, uh, which is still around, has been around for a long time. Um, all of these things, um, they influence everybody, not just the tactical community, but within the tactical community, one of the things that I see a lot of times is individuals using strategies, um, not only with their physical training, but with their nutrition from the bodybuilding world. And one of the concerns there is that the culture um, and the methodologies around those don't really translate very well into the job aspects within the tactical community but it's all about the sexy. Everybody wants to be sexy, right? Everybody wants to perform ideally, but mostly people just want to be sexy. 
So, so that can be very difficult to kind of like find that balance in between there. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're, when you're working with tactical athletes, let's say from a nutrition standpoint, the goal is to really fuel the athlete for performance, develop energy systems, um, make sure that they're staying durable, that they're staying healthy, longevity wise, making sure that their mental capacity, their cognitive abilities are fully developed through the use of nutrition. When we're looking at bodybuilding nutrition, right? There's two primary goals there, bulking and cutting. Um, and, and that's typically it, right? So there's aesthetic performance, right? In the bodybuilding community. And then you have that life or death performance uh, sort of aspect within the tactical community. So the two don't really translate together, but everybody wants to be sexy. So, so I would say that there's a lot of bodybuilding techniques being used within the tactical community. But what I am seeing is that there's really more of a shift with the popularity of tactical programming now starting to come up a little bit. Uh, so I would say, you know, you can do both, right? You just have to do it smartly and prioritize what it is that you're actually trying to do. Well, it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that. And when you said about the influence, I mean, I think we have to give credit to bodybuilding, to influencing overall health, even though maybe the information given wasn't the best. You know, and I, I'm 48, so I grew up in that's what exercise was. It was basically bodybuilding movements. It was, you know, bodybuilding nutrition. And I, I, I say it was muscle and fitness, credit to them, a feature they did on a Miami Dade firefighter that made me realize, okay, I can try and be a firefighter in America. So kudos to that whole movement. And I used to, to follow them. Um, and even now, you know, with, with the CrossFit movement, there was a kind of like smearing of the globo gyms, you know, quote unquote. But now you're seeing, again, some of those bodybuilding movements are actually being used as great accessory work to kind of put some, you know, some um, buffering in some of the areas where we've created weakness. So I think, you yeah, not demonizing bodybuilding, understanding, as Bruce, Lee, as Bruce Lee says, absorb what is useful, you know, taking from that community what works for you, but understanding that looking like a superhero doesn't necessarily mean you're going to actually be able to act as a tactical athlete. Yeah. And I will say like two really uh, positive, specific things that came from the bodybuilding community. One, the bodybuilding community is always early adapters, right? So in let's take protein, for example. Right. So on my side of the house, right, clinical nutrition, registered dietitian side, for a long time, the recommended dosage on protein intake on my side of the house was, you know, 0.8 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight, right, which is extremely low. Um, you know, even in a, in a clinical setting for someone who's ill or in the hospital, that's extremely low. Um, but bodybuilders were doing a gram per pound of body weight. And then some for decades before the scientific community accepted that, right? So now the scientific community is on board with that. Um, so that's one great example. Another great example is creatine, right? Creatine had a bad rap for a really long time amongst dietitians and the medical community because there were all these myths about creatine, not really substantiated by any type of research whatsoever, right? But there were all these myths about creatine about how harmful it can be to your body, to your kidneys and, 
you know, um, you know, saturating the muscle with water and bloating and like stomach issues and all of these things, right? There were some anecdotal reports on that, um, but nothing really substantiated. And now we're using creatine to treat traumatic brain injury in an acute setting in high doses. And now we're recommending it to support cognitive health um, and all of these other things that, that happen within the body. So definitely kudos to the bodybuilding industry, especially because that's where, you know, my husband came from and I think really helped kind of set him up for success when he switched gears. Um, but I would say one of the, yeah, definitely one of the great things about the bodybuilding community is just their willingness to early adapt anything that comes out <laughs> that might potentially be beneficial, right? And then usually the scientific community kind of catches up after that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear because I remember in my sports science years ago in University of North London, they talked about, you know, if you have more than that intake, then you're just going to piss it out. And I know with, with creatine, I do remember taking it and, you know, having GI distress. But now I wonder, well, was it the type of creatine? Was it the quality of the product versus the core, you know, the, the efficacy of what you're actually trying to get? Yeah. And, and always the, you know, as, as technology gets better and things get better, you know, typically uh, things like that are going to be weeded out. Well, while we're on supplements, um, I know Jeff shouts from the rooftops about Thorn. They they sponsor this podcast as well because I shout from the rooftops. I think they're amazing. Them and uh, Bubs, Bubs Naturals. Um, which supplements do you trust with your people? Which ones do you recommend? My primary ones are definitely Thorn. Um, if you go in my cabinet, all Thorn supplementation. Um, if I'm recommending supplementation to my clients, I'm going to recommend Thorn. Um, they're trusted by the Olympics, by the special operations community. Um, they're third-party tested. You can get NSF certified products, right? And from a clinician standpoint, that's what you want. You want something that's going to be safe. Uh, that's going to be um, a product that's authentic. And, you know, the label has an amount of integrity on it. So those are definitely um, my primary ones that I'm typically going to recommend as well. Um Outside of that, um, there's a few products that I like to use, but if we're talking about core supplementation, uh, Thor's is, is typically the only way I go. Now, which other products? Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I will occasionally use um, amino acids. I know there's like a little bit of controversy there, um, but my preference for amino acids is uh, usually Optimum Nutrition, um, just because I've been using them for years. Um, but everything else is, is typically going to be thorn. I'm trying to think of what else I use. My, my calcium supplement is not thorn. Um, that is a, I believe I'm using garden of life right now, but those are, but, but those are kind of like outliers. Now, have you started using collagen? Cause that with, with bubs, that was the first thing that I used of theirs. And I've, I heard Jeff again, you know, absolutely loves it. I was blown away how well it worked, but you know, you hear of it normally with kind of like makeup and, and skincare products. When I started taking it orally, you know, with, with a protein shake every day, not only did my hair, skin, everything improve, but I'm 48, so I'm not too worried about that now. But my GI health was, I mean, I've taken probiotics, I've done so many things, but that was an absolute game changer with my gut health as well. Yeah, I haven't started using collagen, but there's definitely some great research out there to support all of those things, right? Collagen is important for all the cells in your body, right? Tendons, ligaments, joint health. Um, so I'm definitely for it. Me personally, though, I haven't started using any collagen quite yet. 
Um, I did dabble a little bit uh, last year with some collagen creamer, but there really wasn't enough of a, a therapeutic dose in there to really provide a benefit. Um, but I definitely have heard good things about bubs. I'm definitely familiar with the label. Um, but me personally, I haven't started using it yet. Okay, beautiful. Well, that was a, a fun segue. I'll get back to your timeline now. <laughs> so starting Wait, the- I'll, ha- I'll have to go buy some now and then tell you what I think of it. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I the only things I shout from the rooftop are ones that I've found. The only sponsors I have on the show, I have pursued them, hunted them like a dog because I want to tell people, hey, I use this. This is amazing. You should too, and here's why. But the story behind Bubs is very, very powerful. It involves uh, Glenn Doherty, one of the Navy SEALs that protected the uh, the complex in Benghazi. He, he lost his life protecting it. And one of his best friends, Sean Lake, was the founder of Bubs, co-founder. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I've... I've I've had an amazing success at that, Thorn products and Red Pill um, medical CBD, zero THC one, so you can take it as a responder and not worry about blood tests. Those are phenomenal, and I've taken them. Bubs is somewhat new to me, but but CBD I've taken for years now, and it's incredible as well. Yeah, I'm a, so my husband currently, of course, is a military individual, so um, CBD is restricted for him to use, um, but there is definitely some good things around that. Um, I have not used the particular brand that you've discussed, but I am definitely familiar with CBD products and I'm totally all for it, right? Uh, just in terms of sleep, recovery, uh, muscle recovery, I think it's a great product. Brilliant. Well, I know you have an interesting journey through nutrition. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, man. my fa- <laughs> Okay. Uh, so nobody usually asks me to go back that far. So let's, okay, let's do this. Uh, so I was actually born in uh, a small little town called Mandan, North Dakota, right? Um, so a Midwestern farm girl grew up in town, right? Um, my dad was actually in the military for a short time and he was actually stationed in Korea for a brief time, uh, where he met my mother. So typical military thing, right? Meets my mother in Korea, they get married, he brings her back here and poof, here I am. Um, so pretty typical story. Um, you know, went through school, um, pretty ordinary, um, didn't play a lot of sports. I was actually a volleyball player, but I was not really very good. (laughs) Um, and I knew that I wanted to, uh, do something outside of the state that I grew up in. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent set on going to college because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to see the world. Right. So of course, a military recruiter shows up, uh, at my school, which is pretty typical, um, and starts talking about the military and all these things you can do. So, um, I did pursue that not really knowing what I was getting into. Um, but now looking back on it, that really is what led me to everything that's sort of occurring in my life right now. So I graduated high school uh, in 2000. So I'm going to age myself a little bit. And uh, the week after I graduated, I found myself in boot camp um, at the age of 17. And I actually spent my 18th birthday on the obstacle course during basic training. 
um, got smoked for that, um, did all kinds of PT um, while my platoon was singing happy birthday to me. So um, that was interesting. Um, but the job that I chose within the military was as a nutrition care specialist. So if anybody's familiar with military MOSs, it's a 68 mic now. Um, didn't really know what that is. Uh, essentially what it is, is I was a glorified military cook that could work in the hospital. Uh, so I went to cook school and that's actually where I learned how to cook. Cause I couldn't cook before that. I mean, like little things, you know, I could boil water. Um, but I actually went to military cook school. Um, and after that, they send you to some additional training where you're doing, um, nutrition care related stuff. Um, you know, uh, texture modifications, learning about different disease states, macronutrients, calories, very basic stuff so that you can work alongside registered dietitians. Um, and I had the opportunity to work with, uh, several dietitians who were just phenomenal. Um, so that's kind of what led me to the decision eventually become a registered dietitian after I left the military. Um, I think I skipped over the siblings thing. Um, but I do, <laughs> I, I, I'm an only child from my mother, but I do have two half brothers and a stepbrother. Um, should I keep going? No, no, I'll, I'll interject for a second. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you know, you were a high schooler and you end up in the military and now you're doing an assault course on your 18th birthday. And I'm sure the singing made it so much easier. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so going back to that, were you, uh, an athlete when you were at school age? I wasn't. So um, I played like I in the summers, like I would play like the local parks and rec league. They had like softball for kids and, you know, baseball and stuff. And, you know, I did all of that just to essentially be out of my parents hair for the entire summer. And, uh, you know, I was I was decent. Right. I could catch and hit and run um, as any average kid would. But I was never exceptional at it. Uh, same thing with volleyball. I played volleyball in high school. Um, I loved it. Um, was not exceptional at it. I'm also only five foot four. So <laughs> there's only so high I could jump. Um, so again, um, you know, I did that uh, through my junior year and then my senior year, actually, I didn't play. I focused more on um, supporting the team. Um, so I would travel with the team and it was essentially like the water girl, uh, for the varsity team, my senior year, but not really, not really anything exceptional. So while we're on the subject of schools and food, one of the kind of, you know, drums I've been beating this last two years is we had an amazing opportunity to really start discussing, addressing the underlying ill health of this country and other countries as well, but one of the most heartbreaking things is what a great chance to really look at how we feed our children in schools. And of course, at home is the other side of the equation, but where do most people learn about food? Initially, it's, you know, it's from school as well. So when you look back now with the journey that you've been in, and, you know, you're, we'll obviously get to that as we get through the interview, but now a very respected person in the nutritional space, what do you, what's your perception of the schools that are in, in uh, excuse me, the food that are in schools at the moment? And how do we move the needle on that so that we can affect the health of our children? Yeah. So I think even just since I was in school, the quality of the food that's being served, uh, particularly in high schools, 
um, and even on college campuses, even in, in on military installations is, is not phenomenal, right? So now you have institutions like McDonald's, uh, you know, Popeye's, uh, Chick-fil-A, you know, not to demonize any one franchise, but, you, you know, when high schoolers are given the opportunity to choose what's being served in the hot school line, which should be well-balanced uh, or is more well-balanced than what you can potentially get at a campus-style fast food place, like that's the decision that they're going to make is typically not going to be one where they're thinking about their health long-term, right? Um, so I think that's one definite situation that needs to be remedied because there are many high school campuses around the U.S. that have fast food restaurants uh, either on campus or nearby, right, um, that, that cater to some of those, some of those high school kids. Um, and I think that's a real problem, right? Um, I've never been a fan of some of the, uh, school lunch, um, regulations that have been in place, right? There's just some things that don't make sense to me for a long time. And I'll admit that I haven't looked at them in quite some time. Um, but I remember at one point as I was learning about them, I believe ketchup was considered a serving of vegetables, um, which is just ridiculous to me. Um, there's other things that have happened over the years, right? Like the removal of, um, you know, uh, vitamin D milk from the schools, you know, and now we have this issue where a lot of young kids aren't even utilizing dairy products at all. Um, you know, and we're moving to some dairy alternatives. Um, it, and it's just not good for, nutrition, bone health, kind of as they're developing, right? So I've never been a fan of it. Um, I, I wish that I could go deeper into that. Um, but, the, but those are kind of the issues that I have there. Um, not, having not worked directly with the school system as a dietitian, um, I'm sure there's many other things that occur that I don't know anything about. But just off the top of my head, those are definitely some of the issues that I see um, just as a lay dietitian, kind of outside of the school systems. Well, what's crazy is when you look back, you know, a few decades, the, you know, men and women that worked in school kitchens were cooking real food. So it's yeah. not even like we need to figure out, well, we've always had processed food since, you know, the 1100s. How are we going to work out this cooking thing? No, we literally stopped doing it a few decades ago. And prior to that, we were able to do it just fine. So that's what blows me away. And I agree with you completely. Ethically, fast food and soda companies should never be allowed to buy their way onto a school campus. You want to go it, you get it, and then, you know, tell your mom and dad to go get it after school. But, you know, as the alcoholics do, you know, if, if you have a problem being tempted, you remove all the alcohol from your house. Well, if there's no fast food and soda to buy or, or, or get in a school, the kids slowly are going to realize that some of these other alternatives actually taste better and you know just by the pure um addition of daily good habits even if they have some shitty food once they leave school that's such a giant chunk of their nutritional life you're absolutely going to move the needle on their health just by removing all that bad food and only giving them the options of, of you know what children ate 60 70 years ago yeah and i know that i've seen occasionally i'll see you know some things on social media and whatnot 
um, about the way that the U.S. food lunches look compared to other countries. I've even seen kind of the evolution of school lunches from, you know, 50, 60 years ago to what they are now. And I would say that that's absolutely true. Right now, everything comes in a container. Um, sometimes you don't even get fresh fruit. Sometimes it's just, you know, a, a, a fruit cup that you peel open. Right. Um, so absolutely. And I come from a home where, um, you know, I grew up with a, a stay at home mom and, and there was like a lot of, uh, I say stay at home mom, but I actually grew up with my grandparents, but, um, you know, there was a lot of home cooking, um, you know, even if it was high in fat, high in sugar, right. You know, just come from a German family and they just put cream on everything, right. Everything gets cream and potatoes. Um, you know, that growing up with that, um, versus growing up in a home where, you know, cooking is not a thing. I see a lot of that now as well. So you have this generation that's being raised on processed food in the home, right? Processed food in the school. And then, you know, and then we kind of wonder why we're facing an obesity and health pandemic. That's not COVID that's, you know, diabetes, you know, high cholesterol, heart disease, um, all of these things, metabolic syndrome, you know, um, I think we really need to be focusing more on that. And I also just don't think that the health classes, if schools are even doing health classes anymore, right. Or the omission of physical education in the schools is doing us any favors either. Right. So I think there's a lot of issues there. Um, even as someone who works outside of the school system, um, that are pretty obvious that it's like the elephant in the room. We're just not addressing it. Right. I agree completely. Well, speaking of nutrition, another area that I find surprising when you look at hospitals, and again, you know, I'm not demonizing schools. I mean, my, my schools that my son goes to, aside from a specific event that happened that was absolutely horrendous, have been incredible. And I, and I think they're amazing. And the people within the schools only get to deal within the parameters and the rules that they're given. Um, when I look at hospital, we send our sick people to, there are so many elements that actually work against the body's actual natural healing process. So one, for example, would be an ICU. They have the thing called ICU psychosis because they have all the lights and the pinging and, you know, blood pressures being taken and, and these patients aren't getting the sleep. Another side that I see just as a, you know, as a medic going to the hospital and offloading patients over and over and over again is the nutrition in the hospitals do not seem to be nourishing in the very moment where nutrition is needed now more than ever. So what did you kind of witness within the military as far as, you know, nutrition in the hospital setting? Uh, well, I would say not even within the military, but just in the hospital setting in general, right? Because I did spend some time working uh, in hospitals. Typically, um, when you're going through a dietetic internship, um, the majority of that rotation is going to be through a clinical setting in the hospitals. And then I worked as a clinical director for a long time, clinical manager um, in the hospital. Um, and I was never a huge fan of hospital food. I think nobody is right. Um, there's been some improvements. So a lot of hospitals are moving away from more of the institutionalized um, <laughs> prison style <laughs> uh, meal service. And it's uh, a lot of them are moving towards more of a room style 
type service where you can actually call and order off the menu. Um, you can request specific items. So I think that's a positive thing that um, patients are getting more choice in what they're being served and not everybody's necessarily being served the same thing. And the hospitals that I've worked in, there's still a, a, a good amount of fresh food being prepared and served. Um, so I think that's a positive thing. Uh, I will say overall that some of the diets that are recommended to serve certain disease states, heart disease, uh, diabetes, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, one of the things with, uh, you know, a diabetic diet when you're working in a hospital setting is they're feeding the patient according to their insulin dosage if they're on insulin, right? Um, which I don't particularly agree with. Um, I think that there are still items on a diabetic diet that are allowed on a diabetic diet in a hospital setting that are not beneficial um, to somebody who's dealing with that condition, right? So, uh, for example, one of the items that was allowed um, on an individual's meal tray when I was working in the hospital was sugar-sweetened fruit juices, right? Um, not a huge fan of that, but I also understand the reality of the situation of the individuals who are coming into the hospital, right? So usually if something's coming into the hospital for a diabetic related event, it typically means that they're not following a healthful diet outside of a hospital setting. So if someone is consuming high sugar foods, high carbohydrate foods, um, outside of the hospital, and then they come into the hospital, and we completely eliminate all of them, that cannot be a great situation also. But there are also some other things, right? So like cardiovascular disease, like one of the requirements on the uh, heart healthy diet that we served in the hospital was that patients were not allowed to have butter, they were only served margarine, right? And this was in the years prior to them removing the trans fat from uh, margarine, which they did in the last couple of years, right? So we know that trans fat intake has a huge impact on cardiovascular disease and heart health, uh, LDL cholesterol, right? So why are we serving heart healthy diets that contain things like margarine in them, right? And then on top of that, if somebody's diabetic, typically they're going to be consumed by heart disease at the end of their life, right? Most diabetics don't die of diabetes, they die of heart disease. So then we're, <laughs> it's almost like these two diets are very contradictory and um, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially because some of the research that those diets are based on was found to be um, misinterpreted, we'll say, right? So um, I think there's a lot of issues there as well. I think it's getting better, um, much like government, hospital, healthcare settings, it takes a long time to change, right? Hospitals are typically run by committees, by government agencies, right? So even in a private hospital setting, Medicare and Medicaid typically runs the show, right? Um, so, and then on top of that, in order to get anything changed, one of the struggles that we faced um, as a nutrition department is you have to make sure that all the physicians are on board with the change before it can actually happen. Um, and that isn't always the case. There's still, even in that type of setting, the mentality of, well, we've always done it this way and we're going to keep doing it this way. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of struggles everywhere. Um, but I, I will say that that's primarily one of the reasons that I left 
the setting that I was in is because I just didn't agree with some of the things that were happening um, sort of on that side. Well, one more kind of, you know, branch to this specific topic I saw, and I want to say it was Jeff actually posting a lot, um, some kind of outrage towards some of the nutrition within the military, just generally not in the hospital, but just, just some of the, the stuff that was being fed to our, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women. Um, what's your perspective on that? I would say that there is good and there is, is not so good, right? Um, and <laughs> I, I think that just like all institutions, I think the military struggles with budget constraints, with personnel constraints. Um, and, and there's, there's a lot of things that go into feeding soldiers that I think a lot of people don't understand or have any idea that even exists right? Like just the mountain of paperwork and budgeting and vendors and then just personnel, right? Um, I will tell you that I've eaten at my fair share of military dining facilities. Um, I still will eat at a military dining facility uh, occasionally uh, just as as part of my occupation. Um, And I've had good experiences (laughs) and I've had experiences where, you know, I I had to take it easy the next day. Let's just say that. Um, but I think that's something that um, I guess the big thing is, is it really depends on the care that the individuals who are preparing the food put into it, right? Because I have two, I have, I have four or five dining facilities, military dining facilities within, you know, 10 minutes of me. And I go to one and the food, the presentation is phenomenal. Um, the preparation is great. Um, the marketing is great. Um, the setup is great. The aesthetic inside of the facility is great. Um, and I've gone to some where I literally am afraid to go back to. Um, And it really boils down to the leadership that's within each individual facility, right? So not even talking about the food itself, right? Because you have a mix typically of soldiers preparing food. You have a mix of civilians preparing the food, uh, contractors, you know, again, it depends on where you're going. It also depends on what level you're at, right? So if we're looking at special operations, their dining facilities look much different than conventional forces. but in my personal opinion, it's going to come down to what the leadership within that facility is doing, um, because they're really responsible for the culture and for the quality of the product that comes out of the kitchen. Um, I've gone to dining facilities that just look terrible. They're old, they're small, but the vibe inside of them is fantastic. And that translates into the quality of the food that you're getting, right? Because you can turn MRE chili mac into a gourmet meal, right? If you just care enough to do it. And, uh, you know, and then I've gone into some dining facilities where I ask the individual behind the line serving food about the food that they're serving and they don't even know what they're serving. They have no idea. Um, So I personally don't think that it's, um, a, 
food issue per se. I think it's really more an issue of, or, or even where the food is coming from, right? Because the military uses the exact same vendors that, that most food facilities use, right? Um, I think it's really an issue of uh, morale and, and leadership is really what I think it is. Because some of the food that you're getting at these military dining facilities is the same food that you're going to get in an eatery down the street, right? It's just all about how it's prepared and how it's presented. So, so that's my personal take on it. Well, that's why I love these conversations with people from all fields and walks of life, because that is such a perfect analogy for the fire service and, and law enforcement. <laughs> you know, ultimately, it's about leadership. You have human beings, you have fire engines and hose and ladders, and you can either create a phenomenal group of men and women that will absolutely be there for your loved one when they're in trouble, or you can create a liability. Same exact tools, different mm -hmm. scenario. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's about um, creating a standard and then maintaining that standard and then making sure that your people understand that, um, you know, especially for us as dietitians, helping them to understand that it's more than just the food, right? You're supporting our fighting force. You are helping them with their performance. You're helping them with their mental health even, right? Because nutrition plays such a big role in mental health. Um, so, so I, I really think it's, it's less about the actual food that's being served and it's more about the people within the facility. Well, I'm going to walk through that door you just opened because mental health is something that I touch on <laughs> a lot and nutrition and mental health is not, that's a conversation I've had with many people at all. So if I would love for you to expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we focus on with nutrition, especially within the tactical population is low energy availability. Um, and uh, nutrient-dense foods, right? Because when we're underfed, when we're nutrient-deficient, this absolutely has an effect on motivation, mood, anxiety, uh, depression, risk for PTSD, all of these things we, we know, right? So I'll give you a couple of uh, examples, and I use these a lot, right? Because I think they're just really illustrative of how nutrition plays a role in mental health. Um, so on uh, a recent occasion, I actually um, have, and this has happened multiple times, right? But the general gist of it is, is on multiple occasions, I've had individuals come to me who um, have maybe struggled with their weight, right? Um, who have maybe struggled with um, their health and, uh, and, and even their levels of motivation, um, to keep themselves healthy, whether it be through nutrition or training, that's not uncommon in any tactical community. Um, and after kind of assessing them, interviewing them, asking them about their nutrition habits, some of the common themes that really pop up are usually skipping meals frequently, uh, you know, not consuming breakfast because they just don't have time. Uh, rather than finding a way to eat a healthy lunch, they might want to take a nap instead, or they just go through the drive-through, um, skipping both breakfast and lunch. And then we get to dinner time and it's a free for all, right? And then it usually ends up being not healthy food, right? But snacking and then maybe eating a huge dinner or overeating and then snacking again through the night, right? And then we wake up and do it all over again. And oftentimes we can get into a situation where we're just not consuming enough calories to not only support physical activity, but just 
biological health. Um, when this happens and you don't have that energy available for those things, then we know that this is going to impact every biological system in your body, neurotransmitter production. So things like serotonin, which is your feel good neurotransmitter, not only is the majority of it made in your gut by your gut microbiome, but if you don't have enough serotonin in your body, guess what else you're not going to have enough of? Melatonin, which is your sleep regulator, right? And sleep absolutely affects mental health, right? You're not getting enough sleep. You're getting poor quality sleep, right? You have a lot higher levels of perceived stress, uh, greater risk of all of the things that I mentioned earlier. Um, stress levels are higher, and then you're also not getting enough sleep, maybe using poor coping mechanisms like alcohol intake, for instance. And then this messes with your gut microbiome. So uh, other things that can happen if you're being underfueled is you're not going to be able to sufficiently produce enough sex hormone, right? So testosterone levels can be impacted. Uh, if we're looking at thyroid, if you're underfueling, even in the absence of thyroid disease, it can diminish thyroid function, gastrointestinal issues, uh, slowed gastric motility, constipation, bloating, all of that can be brought on by uh, not taking in enough fuel uh, at the appropriate times throughout the day, slowered metabolism, right? So the metabolism will adapt to whatever calories you give it, right? So one of the examples that I always give people, Hey, if you're, if you're sleeping through the night, you're still burning through calories, you're still burning through glycogen. And then you get up in the morning and you think you need to go do a fasted workout, but you don't have any gas in your tank. What do you think is going to happen to your metabolism during that time? What do you think is going to happen to your body during that time? Uh, right. How well do you think you're going to mentally perform throughout the day? How good do you think you're going to feel? How motivated, right? Are you going to be, if you don't have any glucose to feed the brain in your body, a lot of people think motivation is intrinsic and like, it's just something that you have or you don't have. And that's, that's not true, right? Your, your glycogen levels, your energy availability has a huge impact on your, your level of motivation and, and your perceived discipline levels, right? Um, so you have to take all of those things into consideration. Um, we tend to learn about the body as, as separate things, right? Like, so you go through school and you think you learn about the neurological system and you learn about the musculoskeletal system and the digestive system and the endocrine system and all of these systems, cardiovascular system is sort of separate things, separate buckets, right? But in reality, they are all intertwined. So when you have push or pull in one system, it's absolutely going to affect every other system in the body. So when we're talking about nutrition specifically towards mental health, right? Um, having these individuals come into my office and they're under fueling and in as little as 30 days, just by getting them to eat enough calories, we see changes in their motivation levels, uh, in their happiness levels and their confidence, uh, of course, in their physical performance, uh, sleep even, just depending, you know, how far kind of down that spectrum they are when they come to me. Um, a lot of times skin issues are related to gut as well. So we can even see improvements there. And that all kind of leads into just a better quality of life also. So, so when we talk about nutrition, right, 
a lot of times we just talk about it macros, calories, weight loss, weight gain, but nutrition is what determines how every single cell in your body is going to function, period. You know, that's why we have to eat so many times throughout the day, right? Your body requires that. It's code for your body. It's code for your brain, right? So mental health, I think if we took a harder look at nutrition and mental health in some of these tactical communities, right? If we really honed in on it a little bit better, which we're starting to do, right? then I think you would see less mental health issues just just across the board. And and that's my personal take on it. Well, so it's interesting because I know I heard you talk a lot about, you know, the the underfueling as it were. When you look at a lot of the first responder community, there's a huge amount of obesity, diabetes, you know, hypertension, you know, sadly all these things. And then almost 600 episodes in with all these great minds I've had on, especially from the sleep medicine world, you start to realize, okay, well, there's some that are in great shape despite the work week, but there's many, many that succumb and, you know, ownership is absolutely part of it. But the other side of the coin is the sleep deprivation, you know, wreaks havoc on the hormonal system. So for people listening, for and a great example, Kurt Parsi talks about why cops drink coffee and eat donuts you know what what does that do to the appetite um and you know the 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 hormonal side that affects episode, excuse me that affects the uh the weight gain and the ill health of the responder and or soldier you're talking specifically about caffeine intake or no 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 just just overall because what happens like you said you know we talk about mm-hmm. underfeeding now but we have a, a, a huge you know obesity epidemic within our professions as well but when you explore the hormonal impact of sleep deprivation um you know there there are some kind of biological reasons why that Um, weight gain is promoted yeah absolutely so if we're talking specifically about sleep uh and stress right i always like to talk about the two together because i feel like you know there can a lot of times be this cycle um you know one of the primary hormones that we'll typically talk about is cortisol right your stress hormone Cortisol in small amounts at the right times of the day uh, is is appropriate, right? To help with your diurnal rhythm. Um, You know, a little bit of cortisol when you're trying to perform is beneficial. Um, But when we get into these situations where the lack of sleep that we're getting is so chronic that it's now impacting um, our cortisol output right? At different levels, then you're going to see issues with blood sugar regulation, right? Increased inflammatory hormones, right? Um, and, and this can definitely be detrimental to weight gain, right? So if we're experiencing higher cortisol levels, typically blood sugar dysregulation is going to happen. You're going to be more uh, catabolic versus anabolic, meaning that you're going to be more likely to break down muscle tissue, store body fat than you are to do the opposite, right? On top of that, if we're looking at the impact of cortisol on sex hormones, right, they come from the same pro-hormone, right? So if we're talking about DHEA in the body, um, don't ask me to pronounce that. I've never been able to. But if we're talking about DHEA in the body, right, it can be used to either produce cortisol or to produce sex hormones, right, at a very basic level. So if you're in a situation where you're under chronic stress, either from sleep or anything else, right? But sleep is a big one. 
then more of that pro-hormone is going to be utilized to produce cortisol, right? Then is going to be available to uh, produce sex hormones, right? So then we have all the symptoms that can go along with that as well. And then you're going to see greater fat accumulation um, and, and having a really difficult time with recovery. And then this just loops you into this big cycle. On top of that, the recovery process that is supposed to happen during sleep within the brain is not going to happen efficiently either. So we have to take that into consideration. There's different sleep cycles. And again, this is not my expertise, right? So very basic knowledge here um, on sleep is that when you're not getting that restorative process during sleep, then that is going to make everything a little bit more difficult also. And that can definitely have an impact right? On motivation, hormone signaling, um, neurotransmitters, uh, all of that. So um, anytime I'm working with an athlete, sleep is one of those foundational things that becomes a non-negotiable. Now, finding ways to get adequate sleep uh, in a tactical environment can be a little bit tricky. So we optimize the opportunities where we can find them, right? Um, we use different strategies like napping, sleep extensions, um, sleep banking, um, those types of things when possible, um, you know, adjusting sleep environments, using supplementation uh, as necessary um, to help improve the quality of the sleep that we are getting. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because like you said, with, with the stress and with the um, insulin dysregulation or in the uh, pancreas dysregulation, shall I say, there's a craving for caffeine. There's a craving for sugar. So that kind of, you know, joking, um, you know, running joke about police officers and, and coffee and donuts. There's absolutely, <laughs> you know, there's a physiological reason for it. And, and I see it in myself. And, you know, when I was on the rig, like you're not craving a salad. You're craving a donut or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. So you're in this vicious circle then where we're getting calories, but they're empty calories and completely, yeah. you know, nutritionally deficit. Yeah. And you're just kind of perpetuating that cycle, right? So if your blood sugar is dysregulated, that is going to have you crave more sugar. You are going to crave carbohydrates, right? Because your body uses carbohydrates to produce serotonin, um, all these other things, right? So, and then caffeine, we're using that to mask our fatigue, right? Um, I will tell you the copious amounts of caffeine that I've seen some individuals use is extensive, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of caffeine. Um, you'll, that's, that's not a bad thing, right? It can be, it can be a great beneficial thing, right? But if we're abusing it, then that's where it becomes a problem and you, there's bigger issues afoot. Absolutely. Well, I heard you also talking about nutrition and injury recovery. So again, this community that I'm part of, when you take sleep away, you know, you get, especially the people that take their job seriously, they do train a lot. They do, you know, run and lift weights and do the actual training on the fire ground. And every third day they don't sleep, you know, there's, there's a cost there. But again, you don't think so much of the nutritional side, we should, but that's not always part of the conversation. So, you know, talk to me about the kind of resilience element of nutrition when it comes to injury prevention. Yeah. So the body is always, everything in your body is always in the process of being broken down and repaired bone, muscle, your cells, right? Your blood cells uh, only are uh, good for uh, recycle through your body. Like every 120 days, I think it is. I had to 
dig deep in the vault for that one. I think it's a he- every 120 days, you know, your blood cells are being broken down and new blood cells are being produced, right? Your skeleton is replaced every seven to 10 years. Your muscle tissue is constantly in the process of being built and repaired and also in the process of being broken down. Fat tissue, same way, right? So the body, this is how it grows and how it changes. Um, And understanding that in every system, this process of being broken down and rebuilt is constantly happening on in different pathways, right? So take uh, bone health, for instance, right? So when you're running, when you're doing weight bearing exercise, one of the things about running that can help make your bone stronger is you're constantly creating micro trauma in the bone, right? And this micro trauma is normal, starts the inflammatory process, and then begins that process of rebuilding that bone stronger, right? The problem is, is that if you're underfueled, if you're nutrient deficient, what material do you have available to rebuild that bone stronger, right? So now we're looking at, you know, weaker bone, right? If you're not getting enough calories, protein, calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, right? Um, And now you're going to be more susceptible to things like shin splints, stress fractures, um, you know, pain, musculoskeletal injuries, um, just across the board. Um, So you have to remember that, right? So if, if the body is constantly being rebuilt, it's like a, like a brick wall, right? If you don't have the appropriate material on board to make it strong, it's not going to be strong. So your physical resiliency is going to be much lower. Um, You're not going to be able to resist kind of all the trauma that can happen, especially if you're under load frequently. That's a big one. Now you talked about in the schools, um, them kind of removing dairy. And I I can tell you right now, I am, I had stomach issues since I was a tiny, tiny kid. And I went on a plant-based diet for about six months, about five years ago now, and actually probably about seven years ago. And overnight, my stomach had never felt better. So modern dairy products definitely were bad for, for my particular health. When you then explore how you get vitamin D, how you get calcium, obviously there are some other products as well. So what is your stance on dairy? And then what is your stance on the quality of that dairy? Uh, I, I don't have any issues with dairy whatsoever. Um, I personally am, do not tolerate dairy well myself either. So I made the move to um, plant-based dairy products quite a few years ago. Um, I, was, I, I tended to find myself, I was getting headaches pretty frequently. Um, I'm not going to attribute that directly to dairy Um, Because there were other things going on, right? So I was also on birth control during that time. Um, I was also kind of going through some stressful, um, it was during my undergrad. Um, So lots of stress involved as well. So sleep quality wasn't great, right? But I did find that removing dairy from my diet um, did help with the headaches I was having, right? So take what you want from that. Um, From a nutrition standpoint, dairy is very nutritionally complete, right? Proteins, carbs, fats, um, good amount of calories. Chocolate milk has always been touted as a great recovery drink. Um, And it's where most people get the majority of their calcium from um, in their diet if they're consuming dairy products. 
Um, so I don't think that removing dairy from your diet is necessary for all individuals. I think it has to be like an individual decision about what your needs are and and what could potentially be the benefit for you. Um, there are a lot of plant-based, uh, dairy products will keep staying, uh, with milk specifically that have a good amount of calcium added to them and vitamin D, which is great. But from a nutritional perspective, talking about proteins and the available carbohydrates within some of those plant-based dairy products, um, it's essentially not going to be there the way it is in milk. So if you look at the research with, um, dairy, um, and kids, for instance, right, usually, um, when milk is removed from the diets, it's associated with poor health, uh, long-term, right. Poor nutritional status. So you have to take that into consideration as well. Um, usually it's never just one thing that's going to be an issue for most people, right? So I try to avoid sort of demonizing just one particular ingredient or product or, um, you know, vitamin or whatever the case may be, right. Usually there's some indication that if somebody is taking something in that's causing them harm, then there's probably some other issues that need to be addressed as well. Um, I, like I said, I personally prefer uh, non-dairy products. I do love cheese. I will say that. But um, as far as drinkables, we, we don't have any dairy uh, milk in our home. Uh, even my son, um, he actually has a diagnosed dairy protein intolerance, which is different from like a lactose intolerance or just a food intolerance. He's actually allergic to milk protein also, um, uh, which was interesting as he was coming up, we went from projectile vomiting to all kinds of gastrointestinal issues, but, um, but, but dairy itself, I'm not going to say that everybody should remove it from their diet for sure. Um, that that's kind of like a personal individual assessment that you have to make for yourself. Um, and then, then vitamin D, I think you mentioned as well. Um, also about the, the, the quality of the dairy, because that's another, oh, okay. another, another discussion, I think, because, you know, you have dairy intolerance. I certainly had that. I mean, you know, 48 years ago, I was, well, a little bit later than that, but, you know, we were drinking what was probably somewhat clean milk back then. Um, but now fast forward to what they call milk these days with what, you know, the, the conditions that these cows are in and what's pumped into them. You know, yeah. there's, there's many other factors that are causing issues, but like your son, my son from the beginning, like even being breastfed, if my, mm -hmm. his mother had, uh, had consumed milk, he would get eczema, projectile diet, you know, the whole, the whole works. So there is no question in my mind that that child does not tolerate dairy well. Um, oh, yeah. but, uh, but for the people that do, or even maybe some of the people that seem intolerant to me, I almost question if the raw milk is actually probably the, the, the most digestible, but everyone's so damn scared about it not being pasteurized. Yeah. I mean, so in reality, all the foods that we consume now look nothing like the foods that we consumed 30, 40 years ago, right? Everything just keeps getting more and more processed, right? There's more and more stuff, hormones, antibiotics, right? All of this stuff that's pumped into our food all the time. Even the plain chicken breast that you buy in the supermarket, you know, it's, it's filled with, you know, salt water um, as a preservative, right? If you, if you go buy chicken breast at the grocery store versus buying it at your local butcher shop, you would be surprised how much faster it goes bad 
when you get it from your local butcher shop because there's, there's nothing pumped into it. How right? much smaller Even- too? Our chickens here that like a bench 400 pounds. <laughs> Seriously, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's no argument there about the quality of the food that's coming out, right? Um, I will say that you have to take into consideration um, individual preferences and budget, right? Because I've, I've had this discussion before. And I don't disagree whatsoever that if you're getting food, you should get it as fresh as possible in a safe way if possible, right? Um, Local um, or, you know, local food often is the best, especially if it's local organic, right? Because it's going to be close to the source um, where it was grown at. So it's typically going to be fresher, more nutrient dense. Some of the food they get at the grocery store, it's been sitting off of the root source for six months or more, right? They, a lot of times, pick that before it's ripe so that by the time it actually gets to the grocery store, it's edible, right? Um, Frozen food, I have had this conversation just to go off on a tangent. Sometimes frozen food is more nutrient dense than fresh food because it's flash frozen closer to the root source, right? Um, So local, organic, like literally straight out of the chicken, right? You know, the egg's still covered in goo, right? The, the, you know, the, the goo still on top of the milk. Like I'm always a fan of, I am right. Uh, as long as it's, uh, sort of farmed safely, um, that's always going to be your best. Right. But if we're talking about, you know, budget constraints, not everybody can afford that, especially young kids. Right. Um, especially, you know, with the type of pay that sometimes happens in the tactical community, but we have wives and kids we need to feed, right? So sometimes we can't always afford the antibiotic-free, hormone-free stuff, right? So we start with where we're at. But I absolutely agree that the better quality, the less gobbledygook is in your food, the the better off you're going to be, absolutely. Well, isn't that a a tragic statement that the food that doesn't have any shit in it is more expensive? It it is. It is. Um, And it's unfortunate. Um, But um, that's what happens when we live in a society that has to overproduce and overconsume. And I mean, that's capitalism, baby. (laughs) And the government, the, the, the government, right? Lobbyists to tell them where they put their their money, rather than supporting local farmers. And then you have a pandemic, and everyone everyone wonders why the shelves are all empty. Yeah, you know there was this, um, you know, and this is a whole other thing, right? Just the whole government lobbying and and food sourcing thing and farmers, right? Because I come from a farming community, and there was this documentary that came out about I don't know, like ten, probably more than ten years now, and it was called Food Inc. Um, And if anybody's curious about how companies like Monsanto um, destroy small farmers, um, please go watch that documentary. I had uh, Joel Salatin on the show twice now. He's, I don't know if you remember from Food Inc., he's the guy that had the dungarees and the big floppy hat. He was a chicken farmer Mm -hmm. with little wire glasses. Amazing, amazing man. But yeah, I mean... um, 
I think I think his one of his books is called Everything I Do Is Illegal. Like he's just a freaking <laughs> rebel, but you know, a, a farming rebel. But you know, he has this. You know, just he farms the way we used to. He moves his livestock from paddock to paddock, so naturally the, you know, the field gets pooped on, and the pigs turn it over, and you know, it's just it's back to basics. It's amazing. But yeah, I mean that that incredible documentary was heartbreaking. You know, you get this this freaking mega farm who's seeds then blow into these poor farmers that are next to and then they try and sue them for stealing their seeds that they don't even want in their damn farm and it just yeah it's such a glaring look into the absolute you know the 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 darkest side of capitalism is fine make money do things good in the world but that's an abuse of power and abuse of you know um corruption absolutely Right. And there's even there's even some questionability there as to whether those seeds accidentally blew into those farmers fields. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Mm -hmm. then. So the tactical space, (laughs) you were working in the military. I know you worked in Houston for a while as well. Talk to me about your transition from, you know, basically working for an agency to branching out off your own uh, on your own, excuse me, and then working with not only the military population, but the first responders, too. Yeah. Um, so branching off into my own private practice, private practice was something that I always wanted to do. So even when I was working for different agencies, I still was working on building my private practice, um, specifically online. Um, because when I became a dietitian, um, I already was married. I had kids and a family. So doing things sort of in a traditional manner didn't really work for me going into pro sports, college sports, things like that. Um, so, um, I found myself working in with wellness populations, fitness populations through some of these different agencies that I worked for, um, the city of Houston, primarily, I was actually contracted to them through an agency. Um, and I got to help build their wellness program as it was getting off the ground. I'm not sure what it looks like now, but at that time it was, uh, myself, another registered dietitian. Um, and a couple of nurses that were sort of developing these programs to be used throughout the city. So we got to work really closely with fire departments, uh, police stations, uh, civil service workers, even waste management, um, where we would do health fairs, we would be teaching courses, um, even the transportation sector, we were working with them. Um, And that's where I really started to decide that like this cemented for me that this was the population that I wanted to sort of work with. Um, Actually, I'll retract that statement. I feel like that was where I found my most joy was working with the tactical population, but it didn't really click for me until probably a couple of years ago that I could really hone in on that population. Um, Even when I was working in fitness, I got the opportunity through the company that I was working for to actually work with the Wounded Warrior Project Um, So they had actually worked with the company that I was working for, and we got to work with wounded warriors who were trying to rehab back into, they had already been through the rehab process, but now they wanted to get healthy and fit and things like that. Uh, So we were helping them with that. And because of my military background, it was very easy for me to connect with those wounded warriors. Um, And I just really found a lot of joy in it. Um, The other side of it being that because my husband's in the military, Um, And because I've always sort of wanted to work autonomously outside of an agency or a corporation, right? I've just always, like, I've always wanted to have my own thing. Um, And with my husband being in the military, with him potentially 
needing to go to different places and, and me wanting to be able to pick up and move with him if I needed to. Um, that's sort of what pushed me into then really taking on um, sort of a virtual practice and working with um, his coach. So my husband, as he was getting ready for the military, worked with Jeff Nichols uh, as his coach, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And then when we started working together, that sort of just solidified, validated really everything that I was working towards. Um, so that's kind of how that transition kind of happened. Now, when you entered the, the new space that you were in, obviously you've been in the military space for a while now. Were there any areas that surprised you about the first responders, nutrition and, and overall health versus some of the military people that you've been working with? Um, so some of the, some of the different obstacles were, um, hydration, for instance, right? So working with not only, um, individuals who work as, uh, EMTs, but also police officers who are in their vehicles on a regular basis and doing patrols and whatnot, um, figuring out how to hydrate them without them feeling like they had to go to the bathroom every, you know, hour, um, was important, right? So kind of coming up with like a fluid and hydration schedule that worked with their shift schedule and with their their breaks that they would occasionally take and then kind of thinking outside of the box of how they could manage that a little bit better. Um, in the military, um, going to the bathroom is, is not a problem. <laughs> I will say like it is, in the first responder and the police population, right? In the, in the first responder speaking specifically about those individuals who are inside the ambulance. But um, so that was um, sort of an interesting uh, challenge to work with on them. Um, that's probably the only one that really sticks out in my mind. Um, shift work is more prevalent. Also, I will say in the first responder community versus the military community. Um, the military community, while there may be instances where they're pulling uh, patrols and odd hours, uh, where they're doing 24-hour details, um, where they might be doing, you know, uh, early morning things or middle of the night training, that, you know, it's not a part of their day-to-day -day necessarily in a non-deployment situation. Um, whereas in the first responder community, shift work, uh, you know, third shift, all of that stuff. Um, significant amount of overtime also um, are, are unique challenges compared to the military population. So I would say those two are probably the two that stick out in my mind the most. Now you mentioned alcohol as well, and I want to just go back to that for a second. That is by far the elephant in the room when it comes to unhealthy coping mechanisms in our communities because it's socially acceptable. You know, we have, we drink at funerals, we drink at weddings, we drink all the time. Um, I saw this in myself. I actually have abstained for just over two months now um, because I just saw it was, I was never a binge drinker. I wasn't drinking to forget. I wasn't drinking because I couldn't sleep. I was just that guy that was like, oh, I'll unwind with a glass of whatever. That would be two or three. Um, and that habitual thing, you know, I could feel the impact. Well, I've noticed again the, the impact on my gut health by not drinking too. So, Kind of talk to me about what alcohol consumption does to, you know, to an individual, especially like the next day or two after they've had it. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Uh, alcohol consumption. Uh, one of the things about alcohol is it, it, it's essentially a toxin to the body, right? It's not meant to be there necessarily. So whenever you have amounts of alcohol in your system, your body's going to prioritize getting it out of your system, right? On top of that, some of the pathways used to remove alcohol from the body um, share some linkage with some of the pathways that also are involved in uh, fat metabolism, right? Um, so you have to take that into consideration. If you're trying to metabolize alcohol, you're probably metabolizing less fat. So just from like a general um, weight loss standpoint, right? If your alcohol consumption is impeding your ability to obtain and, and maintain a healthy body fat percentage, right? Then that's problematic. Uh, if we're talking about on a biochemical level, even after you have gotten over the hangover portion, right, of whatever you drank previously, that doesn't mean that your body has returned to baseline, right? It can take up to five days after a binge drinking episode for your blood sugars and your hormone levels to, to, to return back to baseline, right? Um, kind of just depends. But if you're doing something like that every few days or just on the weekends, right? We say just on the weekends, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're back at your baseline in a significant enough time period before you go into your next bin drinking, right? And it can be difficult because the culture is, you know, alcohol is acceptable, socially acceptable. We use it to cope. We use it to relax, right? Um, there are even situations in some populations where you're not going to be seen as trustworthy if you're not having a drink with the guys before you go home in the evening or on closeout Fridays or whatever the case may be, right? So, so it can be very difficult. But from a biological standpoint, right, it's not necessarily doing you any favors for long-term health. Now, if we're talking about alcohol moderation, sure, we can say that one to two drinks a week, probably not going to be super detrimental, right? But how does your intake of alcohol affect what you ultimately want from your body, right? Is what we have to take into consideration. Um, I, again, I'm not ever going to tell anybody that they have to stop drinking, but we need to understand just the impact of, of the amount and, and what, right? So one of the things I always like to say is dosage and purpose, dosage and purpose for everything when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to exercise, right? Sleep, even, even the things you're doing on the side, right? Doses and purpose, dosage and purpose is what matters. Um, I typically, if somebody is getting ready for, let's say, um, you know, special operation selection, right? So the population I work with heavily, that's one of the things that we do. Um, alcohol is not going to be a part of that. I'm sorry. If you really want to operate at a high level, right, in that situation where you're preparing to go to a selection process, right, is it really going to be beneficial for you to have that alcohol intake, right? If alcohol intake is your only coping mechanism, then that's a bigger problem um, that we need to work on. But from, from a nutrition standpoint, from a biological standpoint, I mean, there's really no benefit to it. Um, and that's usually an individual discussion that I'll have with my athletes about what's appropriate for them based on what they want. Yeah, well, big thing for me as well is I do harp on about sleep all the time because, you know, my, the, the, the people listening, so many of them don't get much. You know, I mean, it's, 
Absolutely, to me, one of the biggest factors to contributing to not only the the mental and physical ill health, but the early death as well. And when, and this is, you know, obviously anecdotal and proven, when you drink even a couple of drinks to quote unquote unwind, you're disrupting your sleep for that next night. And therefore you have this kind of compounding effect that I saw in myself. And it genuinely took about two months to start feeling clear headed again. This, like I said, this wasn't from excessive binge drinking. It was just habitual drinking that was just, you know, inching up day by day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are misled sometimes because they feel like alcohol helps them sleep better. You might fall asleep faster, but the cycles of sleep that you need to go through in order to actually get the restorative process going are going to be disrupted 100%. Absolutely. Well, going back to the nutrition and, you know, the the kind of information and courses and, and subscriptions that you offer, there's been some great people on here. You know, there's, there's several companies that I bring on. I recommend. Obviously, Jeff has so many programs with his performance first from firefighter to spec ops, you know, preparation, all these things. But as you mentioned, you know, there isn't a nutritional element and that's something that you definitely provide and you understand our populations. So if you wouldn't mind kind of explain what you have to offer on your online, online platform. Yeah, absolutely. So we've actually created um, something called the Tactical Nutrition and Performance Database. And what this is essentially is that I've taken everything that I use with my one-on-one coaching clients, and I've put it inside a membership portal. Um, And I walk you through the entire process that I use. So we start with something called the performance uh, process, the progressive performance process, where I teach you how to self-assess, build periodized nutrition programs, and then execute those um, at a high level. All of the tools that I use with my clients, calorie sheets, macro sheets, um, is all in there. Recipes, meal plan templates, all of that stuff. But the cool thing about it is that I'm not just giving you objective tools to use. I'm actually teaching you the art of nutrition self-management. Um, so teaching you how to take in appropriate ratios of carbohydrates and protein, talking about supplementation. Um, one of the things that we've done this year is we've actually expanded the team um, and we're bringing in strength and conditioning coaches. Um, I have a couple of different uh uh, tactical or cognitive performance individuals that I'm working with, um, physical therapy, um, to really make it sort of a one-stop shop for some of your basic needs. Heavily focused on nutrition because that's what I do. And I have lots of Jeff included, right? I, he's one of the strength and conditioning coaches that I use heavily. Still uh, rely on him for a lot of things, but just trying to provide a place where athletes in the tactical space can come for quality nutrition information that's going to be relevant, usable, and realistic for what they do in their day-to-day lives. Um, And having that all in one place is is just, uh, it's just easy for everybody. And then kind of within that group, I go into that group once a month and I actually do live education as well. Um, so we'll do, we'll talk about things like gut health. Uh, we just did one on cognitive nutrition. Um, I'll have guest experts on there. Sometimes, uh, we had one of our physical therapists come on there and actually teach running is a skill, um, because we deal with a lot of 
running related injuries uh, within the military population. Uh, so that was really beneficial. Um, and that has, I, you know, it, it's been a game changer for a lot of people because not everybody has access to dietitians where they are. Well, one more thing as well. One, when you hear about macros and, you know, some of the nutritional information, especially again, circling around to the bodybuilding world, you know, where every day is chicken breast, rice and broccoli. There seems to be an element of losing that relationship with your food. And, you know, and when you talk about this, you know, when you're in the kitchen, you're cooking, you, your body starts preparing to receive a meal and you start salivating and, you know, relaxing and you're smelling all the smells. Conversely, when you think about some food prep, the way it's prevented, it's all measuring and it sounds more like a chemistry lab than a kitchen. <laughs> so, you know, how, how do you maintain that relationship with food while still obviously ingesting the nutrition that you need? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the cool things about the database is that the recipes in there are freaking amazing. Um, and we structure them in a way so that you can still hit your performance macros um, for whatever your goal is, uh, and still really enjoy eating your food. Right. So I love to eat. <laughs> Maybe that's partly why I became a dietitian. I hate chicken breast straight up. I'm just going to confess it right here. I hate it to death, right? There's a lot of healthy foods that I really freaking hate. Um, so when I'm looking at recipes and I'm providing recipes for people, I'm like, what makes me feel really good? Right. So, and you can kind of see some of that stuff. If you go over to my Instagram page, I have like, um, we just posted a couple of recipes. There's a beef stroganoff recipe there. There's like turkey sliders, pulled pork. Like if you're eating and you want a good relationship with food and still want to hit those performance macros, like it's okay to eat good food, but just understanding visually, right. And even if you're being more precise, which is sometimes necessary, weighing it, measuring it, whatnot, just being able to understand how to put those foods together in a way that's going to be performance beneficial is super important. So there's lots of ways to do it. For somebody who's very brand new to meal prep or cooking for themselves or putting together nutrition, um, if they're, if it's appropriate, a lot of times we will have them measure things in the beginning, right? Because most people don't know what their portion sizes are supposed to look like for their goals, right? Um, you know, I'll just randomly, hey, do you know what eight ounces of steak looks like? And I get all kinds of like different measurements, right? Like sometimes people hold their hands way far out. Sometimes they're like, oh, it's only this big, because uh, people have no idea, because when you go to a restaurant and even when you buy things in the grocery store, just because of the serving size on the package or whatever they put on your plate doesn't mean that that's appropriate for you. So we use the measurement techniques in the beginning to teach people what things actually look like visually, right? So I've been meal prepping for over 20 years and I can put food on my plate without measuring it and be right on the spot with how much is on there, right? Be because I know that information, I've learned that, I've developed that skill. So sometimes, yes, in the beginning, it can look like a chemistry lab, right? But it's a skill you have to practice. And as you get more practice with it, the idea is that you eventually just intuitively know what works for you and what doesn't and what serving size 
looks appropriate for you based on your goal, right? Whether that be weight gain, weight loss, endurance, strength, uh, hypertrophy, whatever the case may be. And that's the goal of what we do, right? Over here uh, at my end is get you to a point where you don't need me, right? That's the whole point of the database. We give you the tools, we teach you how to do it, we teach you the art of it, and then eventually you become your own nutrition coach to some level, right? So, so yes, it can look like a chemistry experiment in the beginning, but the goal to eventually getting you more to that intuitive eating state um, by teaching you the methodology. Well, I heard the conversation you had with a wildland firefighter who sounded like he was a, a fitness um, a trainer as well. But what was interesting is the wildland community now, I hear a lot of them say there is no season anymore. Like a lot of the ones out west are fighting fires 12 months a year. But, you know, some some areas they do have a fire season still. So he was talking about periodization and, you know, the kind of on-season, off-season kind of philosophy in the fire service, municipal fire service, there is no on and off. You've got to be ready 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days a year. I heard you talking about your nutrition plan being like a year, which again, kind of mirrors, I think, Jeff. Jeff's not going to turn you into a Navy SEAL in three weeks. You know, it's going to take a lot of work, just like your husband did. So how do you approach the the regular firefighter, not regular, I mean, wildland firefighters are not irregular, but the, the municipal firefighters and or, you know, EMTs, medics, law enforcement with that periodization element? Yeah. So if, if one of those individuals is at the level where they're starting to get into periodization, right? So they move on beyond just general health and wellness. Typically their body composition is close to where they want it to be, right? They've already got some good habits. Then we can move them into that periodization sort of mindset. Now for somebody who has no off season, that's going to look a little bit different than like a linear linear periodization models, right? So when we're talking about linear periodization for strength training, typically you're working in big blocks of hypertrophy, strength, power, right? And it's very, very structured towards that. Um, and then the nutrition piece there is pretty easy. You just structure the nutrition according to those blocks. When we're talking about somebody who's working already in the tactical space and they're maybe working on multi-energy system development throughout the week, right? Or their training blocks have different focuses each day, right? So maybe one day we're working on strength. Maybe one day we're working on endurance. Maybe one day we're working on power, whatever the case may be, right? Or maybe we have some underlying goals of gaining some lean muscle or modifying the body composition, decreasing body fat then the nutrition piece becomes even more important, right? So from a training perspective, we manage volume for the current tactical athlete because if you're doing too much volume, too much intensity, and then you have to go out on a call, right? Now you're putting yourself at risk and the people around you at risk if you can't perform because you haven't recovered well from whatever training you're doing, right? So the goal with the nutrition for a current tactical athlete is emphasis on recovery and energy availability alongside that particular goal. One of the common mistakes that I see that people make is, you know, they've got their training program or whatnot, and perhaps they want to lose some body fat still, right? They want to lean out maybe. And they'll kind of do this thing where they eliminate a shit ton of calories, right? They cut out their carbohydrates, right? 
Um, and this, this might work short term, but in terms of being able to still adequately perform your training plus your job function, this is definitely the wrong answer, right? So then we have to program that nutrition appropriately, regardless of training. Pro- well, I won't say regardless of training program. We have to take that into consideration, but we, we don't want to do things that are going to be detrimental to that, right? So we look at uh, conservative calorie deficits. We look at appropriate ratios of carbohydrates to protein, right? So even if you are working a nonlinear periodized training program, right? That the nutrition piece is going to dictate how you respond to that training, either in terms of performance and or body composition. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. And I think it's just interesting because I mean, you know, it's, we don't have, like I said, a, a peak and off peak element to what we do, but understanding that you're on this journey. And, and like you said, whether it's power, hypertrophy, strength, you know, whatever you're choosing to do in these blocks, matching your nutrition to that. And, or, you know, a lot of people are deconditioned. So they're having to find their way back. And what is that balance between, you know, reducing the calories so you will actually start using the body mass that you're carrying, the extra body mass, but not to the point that's detrimental that you get a fire, you're not going to be able to function anymore. Yeah. And I will say that kind of um, on top of what we've talked about before with stress and sleep, most people, even if your goal is improved body composition, should not be starting in a calorie deficit. Most people need to start closer to maintenance in order to support a training program especially if it's something where they have been deconditioned, they maybe haven't had a high level of physical fitness and they're starting to train or they're getting back into training, right? We shouldn't also be significantly cutting out calories and increasing metabolic output, right? We should be closer to maintenance calories, establish your training, right? Because if you're closer to maintenance, and you're starting to now apply stimulus through resistance training, right? Then what are we going to see? Hopefully, what we're going to see is optimization of lean muscle mass, right? And we're going to see that your nutrition, if it's closer to maintenance, is actually going to be more beneficial for helping with improving the health of your metabolism and the predictability of your metabolism when you do eventually go into a calorie deficit for weight loss, right? So I think that's a big thing that people don't think about is stop spending so much time in a calorie deficit and just start eating appropriately. And then let's talk about a calorie deficit when you've established that good metabolic health, when you have some uh, improvements in your sleep routine, right? When you've learned to mitigate stress, because that sleep and stress cycle will absolutely impair your ability to lose body fat. Well, speaking of calories as well, you know, you hear people say a calorie is a calorie and that gets a lot of people in the nutritional space very fired up. Um, with, you know, counting macros and calories, when you shift from what would be an empty calorie to calories within a food product that is also going to nourish the body and not inflame the body, do you find even, even the shift to a better quality food can affect the the body consumption, even though maybe they're ingesting the same amount of calories? Absolutely. 100%. So um, if you're moving from more of an 
energy dense diet, right? Overprocessed food, energy dense diet, right? So chips, sodas, candies, fast food, um, convenience food, right? Lots of calories in there, not a lot of nutritional value, not a lot of vitamins, not a lot of minerals, not a lot of antioxidants, not a lot of fiber, right? Maybe not even enough high quality protein into a nutrient dense diet where now we're getting more of those fruits and vegetables, more of that lean protein, more of those healthy fats, absolutely. You're going to see improvements. Um, and I personally believe this, right. That even without a huge change in your calorie intake, because you are going to see better regulation of blood sugars, right. Less inflammation in the body, better digestion, the additional fiber is going to help with the health of your gut microbiome, right? All of these things. Um, uh, so I would, I would say yes, absolutely. Uh, just making that shift is great. What sometimes can happen also is when you're making that shift from energy dense food to nutrient dense food is because the volume of the amount of food that you can eat for the number of calories that you get is going to be significantly higher. So most people tend to actually eat less calories as they're making that shift, but they feel like they're eating more food because they're full. So, so that's something to take into consideration too. Beautiful. Well, I'm sure people listening are, you know, dying to learn how they can access all this information. So where are the best places for people to go online to, to access this and, and to follow you on any social media accounts? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm pretty heavily on Instagram. I don't really do Facebook or anything like that. So you can find me on Instagram at tactical.dietitian. You can also find me online at tacticaldietitian.com. And if you go to tacticaldietitian.com or my Instagram, there are links for you to get more information about the Tactical Nutrition and Performance Database. Um, that's typically where I recommend people start. Um, I do also offer one-to-one -one coaching for individuals who would like a little bit more hands-on. Um, and that is an option as well. But typically the membership database is a great place to start, especially if you're looking for recipes um, and just some things to help you get started. Brilliant. Well, thank you. So I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. Okay. So there are a couple of good ones for sure. Um, so one of my favorite books that I've read within the last five years was Tribe by Sebastian Younger. That was a phenomenal one. That was one that my husband and I um, we, as we were preparing for his career in special operations, we read a lot of, um, books written by special operations individuals. And then we also were turned on to Sebastian Younger's book, um, by a friend of ours because of the, um, time that he spent embedded with different military units and really talking about the brotherhood and, and sort of, you know, the post, um, deployment, feeling of not feeling at home, even when you are home, I guess is the best way to describe it. So that was a really great book. I always recommend that one to people um, just because I love the thought process behind it. Um, so let's see another one. Uh, let's see nutrition related that I recommend is something called the athlete's gut. Um, and the author is going to slip my mind, but that's one that I've read in the last uh, 
couple of years that I think is great for anybody who's looking to improve their gut health. It's not specific to the tactical population, but it does break the gut down very um, in a very understandable way. Um, so I really like that one as well. Um, and those are probably the two I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Those are probably the two that stick out in my mind. Um, I have about a hundred books in my Kindle also that I could probably recommend, but those would be the first two that I would start off with. So, um, Dick Couch, we've read his, uh, book that he wrote several, several years ago on, uh, the Green Berets and his experience, uh, in the special operations community, um, Relentless was another book that we read when my husband was getting ready for special operations. Um, and that was in a personal story um, from an individual who essentially went from being a homeless drug addict uh, to one of the greatest Navy SEALs <laughs> in history. Uh, Adam Brown. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, for, so whatever reason, I was like Eric Brown. But yes, Adam Brown. Yeah. I think <laughs> Eric Blaum was the one that wrote it, I think, if I got that right. Oh, About okay, Adam okay. Brown. Yeah. So actually, I want to get Eric on the show one day because oh, that's that would an be phenomenal. incredible story. Yeah. So that was an amazing thing. Um, those are, those are the ones that stick out in my mind right now. Um, to be perfectly honest, I read a lot of textbooks cause I'm an, I'm a nerd, but, uh, <laughs> those are definitely some that I would recommend. Brilliant. I haven't heard of the athlete's gut and Sebastian Young has been on here. I think, I think it's three times. Um, and he's just got a new book called freedom, which is another great one. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, tribe is an absolute must read, I think for pretty much everyone on planet earth, to be honest. Yeah, I borrow that out to everyone whenever they ask me for book recommendations. Beautiful. Well, what about a movie and or documentary? You talked about Food Inc. already. Are there any others you want to add to the list? Um, movie. Does it have to be documentary or no. can it be? One of my favorite movies of all time is Shooter with Mark Wahlberg. I love that movie. Uh, that's That's a great one. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, yeah, so I have uh, so my physical therapist that I work with, um, she's another military spouse. Um, she works 100 percent only with the tactical community. Um, she also um, is involved with the canine community. Um, Jamie Raz. Um, her Instagram handle is at doc underscore M-R-A-Z. Uh, she's fantastic. Um, and we are actually doing a lot of work together in the coming year. Um, so you would definitely be hearing more about her from me. Perfect. Well, thank you. I'll definitely look into her. Um, the very last question then, what do you do to decompress? Ah, uh, sleep. Totally <laughs> <Me too>. sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, totally sleep. I'm also a big uh, music person. Um, so music has always been like kind of a constant in my life. So when I was younger, like I was very, I'm a, I'm a very um, wear my emotions on my sleeve type of person. Um, and music has always been something that has really spoken to me. I actually paid, played the piano when I was younger. Um, I've been thinking about picking it back up. Um but sleep definitely after my training sessions during the day, I'll usually spend about 10 minutes decompressing um, from my training sessions. And part of that is um, tactical breathing or box breathing. Um, and then I'll usually spend a few minutes just with my headphones on, just kind of listening to 
um, a song that relaxes me and kind of um, speaks to my soul a little bit. So, so music, sleep, um, and, and just the quiet. Um, I enjoy silence. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Susan, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, again, when people come on, obviously they have a body of work and it's interesting. And I love going on that, but it's all the other stuff, the space between the lines, as they say. And, you know, the perspective that you have within the military itself, now working with all our tactical populations is invaluable. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, I'm honored. Um, thank you so much for having me. Hopefully we can talk again soon.